Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Later in the hour, we're tackling the science behind your Thanksgiving cooking. Kenji Lopez-Alt is going to join us, and we want your questions about how to use science, chemistry, physics, whatever, to make your dinner better. Or what have you discovered that is really science in action when you cook and you'd like to share it with us? Our number is 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, or you can tweet us at SciFry. But first, early Wednesday morning, the successful launch of the Artemis One rocket to orbit the moon. Three, two, one, boosters in ignition, and liftoff of Artemis One. We rise together back to the moon and beyond. A big first step toward eventually putting people back on that gray lunar ground. So, what lies ahead? Joining me now is Brendan Byrne, space reporter at WMFE in Orlando and host of the Are We There Yet? podcast. Welcome back to Science Friday. Glad to be here, Ira. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you. I imagine it was nuts at that launch, right? I heard the shouting and the screaming. (laughs) <laughs> it was bonkers. I keep telling people it was indescribable, which is a, a terrible thing for a reporter to say, but <laughs> it was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. Now, I know there were some tense moments just a few hours before the launch with a, a leaking valve. I spoke with Jim Free. He's a NASA's Associate Administrator for Exploration Systems Development after the launch on Wednesday, and I got his view of the launch. So I was in the launch control center, which is actually pretty well protected. The windows rattled. But uh, talking to folks who were on the outside and seeing somebody's videos that folks took, it was a pretty uh, intense pressure wave that hit. How's the mood now? The mood is, uh, I I don't even, elated. I probably can't come up with the right words. You know, that's a a long time coming. The hard work in engineering and there's not a lot of launch vehicles that their first launch is successful. So, you know, of course, we still have a long way to go with the mission and some milestones ahead of us. Uh, that we don't take for granted. But boy, to see that rocket go yesterday was incredible. Yeah, sending a team in to tighten down some nuts under a partially fueled rocket a few hours before lunch, that's kind of a gutsy move, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, actually, I, I was pretty jealous of the Red Crew. <laughs> you you uh, wanted to do it? I would love to do that. I'm at probably more at peace with the hardware than I am with the uh, the management stuff. But uh, the great thing was all the procedures that are put in place to do that stuff worked. You know, safety of the people, giving them clear direction. The fact that within just a few minutes of seeing that leak, people understood that, hey, that's where the leak is and that valve is probably loose. And really only be not that far into our launch window, uh, I think, was a great testament to that hard work. What do you watch for in the coming days? First thing we watch for is just coming off of the launch vehicle. Can we get the spacecraft power positive is our term. Basically, can we get the solar rays pointed at the sun and get enough power to keep the spacecraft alive? And we've been able to do that. We start firing the engines. There's a whole series of burns we go through with the engines to make sure they all work. You have three different sets of engines on the vehicle uh, for, for control, some of them for boost, some of them. So we try and test all that out and make sure that the temperatures are within range. And then we you know, start doing some of the big maneuvers. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll do some in a few days to insert ourselves into the, the lunar orbit. And then we'll sit in that orbit for a, a few days and be 
further away from the moon than uh, any human-rated vehicle has ever been. And and then we'll come back and, and splash down. So we look for all those kind of milestones in the systems uh, to build up our confidence before we put crew on it the next time. Yeah, so this is really a test mission before you put people on the rocket. Yeah, absolutely. So we're testing out all these systems. You're pushing them farther than some of these crewed missions will go so that we're really stressing them uh, so that we gain confidence before the crew gets on there. Now, it doesn't mean we take the edge off, right? We don't breathe easier. We just have more confidence that we understand how the systems operate. We still take the same care when we put it together. Yeah, because after this launch, it's going to be, what, a couple of years until you put the crew on? Why such a long time? So a few years ago, we made the decision really around budget to connect Artemis 1 and Artemis 2 with some of the electronics boxes, meaning we're going to reuse the electronics boxes from 1 to 2. So one is up there operating. Uh, we're going to bring it back and recover the vehicle and then bring the vehicle all the way back to the Kennedy Space Center and then get in there, take these boxes out, send them back to the vendor, let them get tested, bring them back, and then put them in the Artemis II crew vehicle, which is being built just a couple miles from where I'm at right now. And then that will go through the rest of its integration and tests. So we have this connection of electronic boxes that puts a, a little bit of a, a fixed bar between the missions. And then we just have to get Artemis II Artemis crew capsule through the rest of its flow and up on top of the launch vehicle. So what can you hope to learn from Artemis 1 that you'll bring to Artemis 2? Uh, so we have uh, you know, a great international partner on this mission that has built the service module, the European service module that provides the propulsion and, and cooling and power. We want to learn how does that system function uh, in deep space. This is not like low Earth orbit. We're on the other side of the Van Allen belts. Uh, so the radiation environment is, is more uh, complex. The thermal environment with the albedo from the moon, the reflection of the moon and how that affects the vehicle. So we, we want to have those kind of points. Like, do we have the right set points on our parameters? Do we have the right flight rules? When we fly uh, systems, we, we come up with flight rules. So when you see the folks in mission control, they're working to a set of rules that we've made engineering assumptions on to evaluate. And now we, as we fly the mission, we want to say, are we, are we too stringent? Are we not stringent enough? Probably the, the thermal is definitely something I'd highlight, the propulsion elements. And then the crew capsule. You know, that crew capsule has a lot of systems in it that have to function um, with the crew in it next time. And uh, we'll hope to, to learn some of that. Yeah, because you have to maneuver that, that capsule around, don't you? Like we haven't done since Apollo days. That's right. Yeah. So we have, uh, I mentioned the three three types of uh, propulsion systems on there. We also have a guidance navigation and control system that helps us look for uh, the star fields to see where we are in space. Um, we have to fire the engines at, at precise times. We'll do an engine firing on the far side of the moon where we're not even in communication with the vehicle. So there's a lot of things that we have to do for the first time. Mm -hmm. And what at what point do you say, hey, we can relax, we've got what we needed to get out of this flight? Uh, probably when the ship docks in San Diego. Uh, <laughs> when, when Because our objectives are to test our, all of our systems in space in the flight environment, and that started with the launch, um, and it's going on right now with Orion. We want to test the heat shield coming back in, and we want to recover the vehicle. 
So with those three major objectives, I'll feel better when that, that vehicle is sitting in the well deck of, uh, of the Navy ship. And looking forward, what is the timing for the rest of the mission? When might we see people walking on the moon again in, in, in a very uh, large sense, in a projection sense? Yeah, so Artemis 2 is followed by Artemis 3. There's not the same connectivity between 2 and 3 uh, with the reuse of the hardware. Um, so we're hoping for uh, Artemis 3 at the end of 25. We have to build a, a human lander for that mission, and we have to build new spacesuits for that. So there's even more hardware coming online. And then we're looking at Artemis 4, which will be the first flight to our mini space station around the moon in the uh, late 26, early 27 timeframe. And then we're, we're going to start going every year from there on out. Well, Jim Free, thank you and good luck to all of you there. Thank you very much. We'll uh, hope you all stay tuned in what's going on with Orion. That was Jim Free, NASA's Associate Administrator for Exploration Systems Development. Sitting here talking with me and listening to that interview is Brendan Byrne. He reports on space for WMFE in Orlando and hosts the podcast, Are We There Yet? Brendan, interesting conversation. Um, how, we are now a couple of days into the mission. Where is the spacecraft now and, and what is it doing? So I'm taking a look at the telemetry right now. It's 195,000 miles away from Earth and about 123,000 miles away from the moon. And the cool part about where it's at now is that it's being influenced more by the moon's gravity than the Earth's gravity. So that's like a really incredible milestone for a new vehicle, the first vehicle designed for humans since, as you mentioned, the Apollo program in, in 1972. So that's where it's at. And it's testing out all the systems, as, as Jim mentioned. Um, they're testing some of the systems out inside. Um, there's actually this really neat experiment happening inside the capsule. Um, engineers hooked up an Alexa, just like you would have at home that you talk to, um, to a WebEx um, and, a, and, a, and a, a tablet. And this is going to be used for future Artemis astronauts to communicate back to Earth. Um, but there's no internet, right? So they're, hmm. they're testing out all of these different systems in deep space and how you can communicate back to Earth, because that's something that's, that's going to be really important, is to be able to reach back to Earth when you're this far away. Uh, so that's happening inside the capsule now. Now you've triggered everybody's Alexas across the country. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize, everyone. And, and, and the rocket didn't just have this one spacecraft, right? There were a bunch of tiny CubeSats on board. What what are they for? Yeah, so I think CubeSats are one of like the coolest developments in aerospace engineering, right? So you take what, what used to be these massive satellites and you're able to, to break them down into these really, really, really tiny spacecraft, like the size of a tissue box. And there are 10 of these that got deployed um, just shortly after um, Orion was making its its trip to the moon. Um, and they're not just experiments that are looking at the moon. Um, they're going to be looking at our Earth, our sun, um, and even a near-Earth asteroid. But one of the really cool ones that's on here is it's got a strain of yeast. Um, so these are live cells that are going to be living in deep space. And there's a set of these yeast cells on the International Space Station, and we have them here on Earth. And scientists will be able to compare 
how this deep space environment, the radiation that astronauts may be exposed to on these deep space missions are going to affect the DNA of these yeast cells, which we can extrapolate hmm. and look to see how it might affect us uh, or humans when they're out there. Um, so that's really cool. There's also some sensors that are looking for the minerals that are going to be on the surface of the moon. Scientists are really excited that there's water underneath the surface that we can use for fuel for future missions. And so these little tiny CubeSats are doing really big work wow. uh, uncovering all of these things in, in deep space. All right. We're going to take a break and come back and talk lots more about uh, Artemis. Uh, we're going to be taking your calls, 844-724-8255. That's 844-SCI-TALK. We'll be taking your calls, and uh, you can also tweet us. We'll be back with Brendan Byrne. Stay with us. Hi there, folks. I want to thank you for being here. I want to take a moment to say just how grateful I am to you. By downloading or listening to this podcast, you're making my work more fulfilling, sharing in my curiosity and love for science. You're also keeping the conversation going beyond just Fridays. Science Friday continues to make an impact because of people like you and your commitment to factual science news and information. Our work and this podcast depends on public support. If you haven't already, please make a donation to Science Friday and help us continue to share science with the world. You can go to sciencefriday.com support to make your gift. Thank you, and happy holidays. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking this hour about the Artemis moon mission, what lies ahead in space exploration. I'm talking with uh, Brendan Byrne, space reporter at WMFE. And we're also taking your calls, 844-724-8255. Let's go to the phones to Harvey in Orlando. Great spot to be in Florida, Harvey. Yes, it is. And I, I just, I, I've got maybe a little bit different perspective. I was uh, a teenager when the Apollo mission started going off to the, to the moon and uh unfortunately uh, was in the audience when we heard that apollo one had uh, had burned up on the on the pad during a test and you know the, the 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 triumph that has come out of that tragedy is just incredible but i've got a little bit different perspective because i was able to listen to the issues and and all the controversy about should we be doing this i don't think there's any question now that we should be and i'm glad that we are but having seen the apollo missions go and all that we got out of that and all that nasa has benefited mankind as a result is is just been astounding but this now going forward again with artemis is just incredible i've got some 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 interesting aspects of that because I was listening to the differences between what I remember from the Saturn missions. And when the Saturn V-B took off, it was an extremely intense popping sound. Right. And, and I was pretty close. With the Artemis, and I assume this is because of the solid rocket boosters, it was more of a continuous roar. But it was more tactile. When it hit you in the chest, it was like you were inside of a bass drum, and it was just pounding incessantly. And it was just 
it was it was incredible to be listening to this and tears streaming down my face. I was just I was amazed. Wow. Wow. Lastly, this this red crew that went out. I don't think too many people remember that there was another red crew that went out a long time ago and locked down some some nuts on another rocket before it took off to the moon. That was Apollo 11. But there was a, a crew that went out there and had to lock it down so that that Armstrong and all and 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 his crew, Buzz Aldrin and uh, Collins could could go to the moon. So this is the second time that a um, that a, a group has gone out to lock down some some hydrogen leaks. Well, Harvey, thank you for for your your reflections and your remembrances, and uh, good luck to you and everybody else in Florida. Good deal. Go Artemis. There you go, uh, <laughs> Brendan Byrne. What do you think? That 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 was one excited observer, I think. Yeah, yeah, and there were there was plenty of of more just like Harvey out there, and he's right that that sound it was it's a great way to describe it. It was percussive, and it, it was from those those solid rocket boosters. And uh, mm. I think one of the coolest things about about the solid rocket boosters that that Harvey's talking about is night turned into day. I mean, you could actually see the blue sky at one o'clock in the morning when those things lit up. It was it was pretty wild. And and to Harvey's point about the the red team, uh, most rockets have used a red team like that. Uh, it's been called different things over the years. I think it was called the ice team for shuttle days, but but they've been deployed to do that. It's very very dangerous work but very important work so you know the folks of, of the red team of, of all the different rockets from from apollo to ula's atlas 5 to the space shuttle uh, they all have those red teams in place mm. to do that kind of work they must have some kind of toolbox they take along yeah right let's go to david in milwaukee hi david oh did we lose david oh, we just lost david i guess what he's asking and and i uh, we, we might have covered this a little bit how does how does Artemis Brendan fit in with the the? He was wondering about Mars. Does it fit in with any plans for going back to Mars at all? It does, and 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 you even heard with with that launch commentator, you know, counting it down, saying, you know, this is one step getting us closer to Mars. Learning how to live and work in deep space is going to be imperative um, if we're going to go to places like Mars. This has been, these Artemis missions have been described to me as like, you know, camping in your backyard uh, before you you hike the Appalachian Trail. Um, you want to work out all those kinks when you're closer to home. Learn to live and work in deep space for a, a short period of time before you go even, even further. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that there's water on the surface of the moon. Well, part of NASA's plans to get to Mars is to set up the moon as a base for fuel. You can take that water and separate it into hydrogen and oxygen. We all know very well that SLS uses hydrogen uh, propellant. Um, You can use that to refuel your rocket from the moon to get you to places like Mars. So the Artemis missions are imperative if we want to get to places like Mars and deep space. A tweet from Mark in uh, Madison who says, uh, how much of the old Apollo knowledge and tech is being dusted off for Artemis? Uh, Quite a bit. I mean, a lot of the Apollo tech is being used all over the the space flight program. I mean, mean, for instance, um, the parachutes that bring the crew capsules back home, from the International Space Station that SpaceX and and uh, Boeing use, those are inspired by uh, Apollo engineering. Um, but there's a lot of also space mm. shuttle legacy hardware in in uh, the SLS. I mean, those are RS-25 engines. Those four engines on the core stage came from the space shuttle right. program. So right. there's a lot of legacy hardware and knowledge in this program. Something that kind of flew under the radar this week because of Artemis was was testing out a new kind of heat shield on Mars. Right? They were. They were. They came up with something new. Can you talk about that? 
I think you're referring to the heat shield that uh, that ULA launched uh, yes. recently. Yes, this is an inflatable heat shield. Um, and and from all accounts, uh, of course, I was I was focused on on Artemis, but the accounts that I read that everything went very well on that one. Um, so you know, yeah. a heat shield is extremely important. So it's good to have a few that's more good. in your arsenal. <laughs> well, let's go to Rich in New Smyrna Beach, Florida. Hi, Rich. Hey. Hey. Go <laughs> good ahead. Afternoon. How are y'all doing? Fine. Hey, uh, I was wondering, uh, Brandon, uh, what, with all the, I'm, you know, in New Smyrna Beach, I get to see the launches all the time, walk out in the front yard. Uh, we've got so many satellites going up uh, with SpaceX and, uh, and NASA and, and, you know, DOD. How do they keep from hitting one another? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good question. I mean, are, are there crosswalks or bike paths with <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a very good question and something that is becoming more and more of, of, of an issue of this collision avoidance. The Department of Defense is working on it. There's all sorts of, of organizations that are calling on this. When, when Artemis launched, they actually had to calculate what window, this crosswalk, as you mentioned, that it could actually launch in, that it wouldn't hit anything. This is, this is not like a, a standard satellite, right, that, that kind of goes into the flow of, of what's already in orbit. It's punching through that flow. So they actually did had to calculate where everything is in orbit. And as more and more stuff gets up there, things die. Mm. Um, things could crash into one another, creating even more debris. So space traffic and space junk and space debris avoidance is, is a really big issue. And it's it's something that a lot of agencies want to get on top of now before there's something catastrophic that happens in space. Hope that answers your question. Thanks for calling. Uh, uh, the Artemis program isn't just NASA, right? It, it has involvement with the European Space Agency in Canada and other nations too. That's right. Yeah, a lot of a lot of these these agencies are are helping build some of the hardware that's going to be going there. Um, there's going to be an international crew on these Artemis flights. We're going to have other than just NASA astronauts there, and Gateway, which uh, hmm. which Jim Free spoke about a little bit, will be also built by different countries the parts uh will be built by different countries and, and different commercial uh entities as well but also some other countries have their own plans mm. to go to the moon right china right. has announced plans to uh, send three uncrewed missions to the moon russia has signaled it wants its own moon program so uh, the moon is going to be a very busy place in the next few years all right we'll be watching and uh, hoping you'll uh, help us keep track of it brendan I'd be more than happy to, Ira. You know I'm happy to chat space with you anytime. I know, and we could go on all day. <laughs> we could. <laughs> Brendan Burns, space reporter at WMFE in Orlando, host of Are We There Yet? That's a great question. Are We There Yet? podcast. Thanks for being with us today. Anytime, Ira. Thank you. Thanksgiving is right around the corner, and for many people, that means we need to start thinking about what's going to be on the menu for dinner that night. I know lots of us have already started thinking about that. Are you doing a classic turkey? Maybe you're sticking to vegetarian. How you prepare your food for the holiday takes a lot of thought, and if you want to get competitive edge on the food front, there's a ton of science, a ton of chemistry in food preparation and cooking, and no one better to answer your Thanksgiving food questions than my guest, Kenji Lopez-Alt, cookbook author and food scientist based in Seattle, Washington. Welcome back to the show, Kenji. Hey, thanks for having me. So much chemistry in food, isn't there? Uh, yes, quite a bit. <laughs> Let's start then with the centerpiece of most people's or many people's Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving mm -hmm. meals, the, the turkey. Now, mm -hmm. I know there's a big argument that seems to happen every year, and that is 
to brine or not to brine. Right. So what is brining and what does it do to the meat? Right. So brining, what it does, so the act of brining is when you take your turkey or your chicken or whatever it is and you dunk it in a, uh, a salt water solution and let it sit there generally overnight or so. Um, what it does is that, that salt water um, dissolves some of the muscle proteins uh, that, that are kind of wrapped around the individual muscle fibrils. Um, and so when your turkey cooks, um, what happens is those proteins contract. Um, and that's what causes juices to kind of squeeze out. Um, and so the hotter you cook it, the tighter those those proteins contract and the more juices get squeezed out. Um, what brining does is it kind of it kind of loosens up some of those proteins, it dissolves them so that they don't squeeze as tightly, which means that cooked to the same temperature, a turkey that has been brined uh, will retain more moisture, about seven mm. percent more moisture mm. um, than a than a uh, turkey that hasn't been brined. No. Um, now, of course, the debate is whether it's worth it or not. Um, right. What I recommend is a process called dry brining, which is uh, it gives you all the advantages of a wet brine, um, plus I think it tastes better, um, and it also means that you don't need to pull out that you know, five-gallon bucket or, or the, the cooler uh, to soak your turkey. Um, so essentially all you do is you uh, season the turkey pretty heavily with salt. Um, if you can, you know you want to get like a little bit of salt up in between uh, the skin and the meat on the breast. Um, in particular, that's what uh, your and fingers you going it. under the skin. Then is what you're exactly, saying. yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then you leave it uh, uncovered uh, on a rack in your fridge uh, at least overnight and up to two nights. Um, and so you get a lot of the same effects as brining, so it'll retain more moisture, um, but you'll also get kind of crispier skin because you're not soaking it in water mm. for yeah. for a couple nights. Um, so uh, I. I Excuse me. I think it's a better method than just right. uh, traditional wet brining. Well, I know lots of brining recipes have sugar in it. What's the deal with sugar versus salt here? Yeah, well, sugar is mainly going to be for for flavoring and also to help it kind of brown a little bit. So if you do want to, you know, if you do want to put a little bit of sugar in your turkey, um, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's a wet brine or a dry brine, um, that'll help it brown a little bit. Um, but you you do have to kind of be careful uh, that um, it, it doesn't go too far, you know, because turkey skin that's been rubbed with, with sugar it can you know if you're doing it low and slow on a smoker that's one thing but if you're roasting and roasting it in the oven um mm -hmm. it could start to you know brown a little bit too fast um in which case you just want to kind of check your oven temperature and, and ease back i want to bring our listeners in on this 844-724-8255 if you have a question or a suggestion 844-724-8255 uh, before we go to the break, I've got to ask you about this latest turkey recipe published in the New York Times this month, mm -hmm. which uses a key ingredient that I have to say as a New Yorker <laughs> and reading the New York Times, I was yeah. a little more than a little surprised to see, and that was mayonnaise. You put yeah. mayonnaise <laughs> on your turkey. What, what is it about mayonnaise that you think results in a good turkey? Uh, well, you know, you, you don't need it to get a good turkey, of course. But, um, you know, what, I, what I've found is that... Uh, if I'm going to be adding some kind of herb flavoring to it, you know, so in the past I might have done uh, like a butter, an herb butter, or maybe an herb oil. Um, the difficulty with herb butters is that it's it's hard to get the butter at just that right temperature, I think, where you can kind of spread it all over the turkey and get a nice even coating. Um, whereas mayonnaise, you know, whether it's straight out of the fridge or at room temperature, it spreads and it holds its place really easily. So it makes it really easy to uh, get those herb flavors into uh, a sort of wet mix that you can then get all all on like an even coating on this on the on the surface of the turkey. Um, the other thing thing that mayonnaise offers over butter is that um, the protein in the mayonnaise, and it, this is true whether it's a uh, 
a vegan mayonnaise, which is stabilized with plant proteins, or um, or a traditional mayonnaise stabilized with uh, egg proteins, um, the protein in there is going to help uh, kind of solidify it. Uh, so instead of butter, which kind of melts away and just drips right. off, um, the mayonnaise kind of helps keep all of the herbs and garlic or whatever it is you put in your in your in your uh, um, your mix. Uh, right, right up there against the turkey as it roasts, and by the time it's done roasting, of course, there's no kind of it doesn't look like mayonnaise. Okay, it all breaks. And uh, it just I feel like better oil. now. <laughs> yeah, you don't put mayonnaise on your pastrami, do you? No, it's a different, no, different topic. God no. <laughs> uh, this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Uh, we're, we're talking about the the science of cooking, and we're taking your calls at eight four four seven two four eight two five five. Uh, I have I have a tweet that came in. It's kind of interesting. Why do we preheat the oven? John on Twitter wants to know, wants to know. Is it a logic uh-huh. logical thing about standardizing cooking times, or does the immediate heat do something different or better than letting the food come up to temperature with the oven? So it it depends on the situa- on the exact recipe and the situation and situation. But by and large, it would be the the first uh, answer, which is that. Um, all ovens heat differently, uh, and so you know an oven that could take forty-five minutes to preheat. You know, someone someone's oven might take forty-five minutes to preheat. Someone's ovens might might take fifteen minutes to preheat. So if you're putting your food in as the oven's preheating, you're building a lot of uh, unpredictability into the timing and into that recipe. So um, allowing ovens to properly preheat does standardize time in certain recipes. Um, you know, there there might be certain types of styles of roasting where you would start at a really high temperature, right, uh, and then kind of drop the temperatures as you go along. Um, with those types of recipes, definitely preheating um, is what gives you that sort of blast at the beginning that allows you to kind of sear surfaces. Um, so in those cases, there is sort of a functional benefit to preheating. Mm. Same with like if you're mm-hmm. baking a pizza or a loaf of bread, you you really want to properly preheat not just the oven but also the stone or the steel that you're baking on uh, because all of that um, absorbed energy in the walls is what's going to help your, your pizza or your bread get the, the oven spring, you know, with the nice big bubbles in them and the right. nice char on the surface. So in, in many cases, the um, preheating the oven is a sort of a functional thing as well as a well, practical thing as a recipe writer. Is, the, is there a better pan than an, an, what kind of pan to put the turkey in physics-wise that will absorb <coughs> or radiate the heat best? Yeah, so I would say do not use the standard... Um, uh, deep walled uh, roasting pan you know I have like a roasting pan that has like walls that are maybe three inches tall right uh, and it's made of heavy stainless steel um, and it comes with a v-rack meant for poultry um, I think this is one of the worst ways you can actually cook poultry because what it does is the uh, the pan kind of shields the bottom of the bird so the area where the uh, the thighs are meeting the backbone it's kind of shielding that area and it's preventing both uh, radiant heat from the oven and more importantly convection so hot air, flowing around the oven from getting to that area. Um, and so what ends up happening is that that area cooks really slowly. And that's the part where you're always supposed to take the temperature because that's the part right. you want actually cooked to the highest temperature. Um, and so by the time that comes up to the right temperature, everything else, in particular the breast, is like heavily overcooked. Kenji, um, so, I'm going to interrupt you and get the answer when we come back about what right. you should do because we're running out okay. of time. But I want to hear, this is really interesting, con- talking with Kenji lopez uh cookbook author based in Seattle. Our number for more suggestions, 844-724-8255. We'll be back with the answer about the right utensils to use in the oven for your turkey. What should you cook it in? Stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. For so many black people, the Wiz feels like home. Like home. 
The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. And as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to the Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're continuing our conversation about the science behind preparing our favorite Thanksgiving dishes with my guest Kenji Lopez-Alt, cookbook author and food scientist based in Seattle, Washington. And when I rudely interrupted him <laughs> to go to our break, <laughs> you were telling us what not to do, not to use the deep-sided standard kitchen cooking pan right. for turkey. What should we be doing? Uh, you should be using just a regular uh, rimmed baking sheet, like a sheet pan. Um, so, a, you know, a half size sheet pan, I think it's like 23 inches by 18 inches. Um, that'll fit um, like a uh, 14, up to 14 pound or so um, spatchcock turkey or whole turkey. Um, so that with a wire rack set in it. Um, so the idea is that you're going to get a lot better circulation uh, under and around the turkey than you would with a deep sided uh, pan. And so your, your cooking is going to be a lot more even. All right, let's go. Lots of, of course, you can imagine lots of folks want to talk about uh, cooking. Paul in Conway, Arkansas. Hi, Paul. Hey, Ira. Um, long, long time listener. Sir, great program. Uh, previous great programs before. I'd like to comment. Um, I've cooked many a turkey over the years. Mm-hmm. I like to cook. I really appreciate your guest smarts. What about fried turkey, guys? You, you northerners are missing out. <laughs> we, we have it up here. We've tried it. We've almost scalded ourselves with hot oil. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love a fried turkey. I love, I love a good fried turkey. Um, yeah, I think, I think space-wise, it's a, little, it's a little hard. It's more intimidating. <laughs> well, what, what does frying do physically to the turkey? And, and, and thank you, Paul, for that call. Uh, what, what goes on in the turkey that's different from roasting it to frying it? Well, so the, I mean, the main thing is that you're you're transferring heat at a much faster rate. Um, so you're um, you're you're really going to get extremely crispy skin, um, and all the meat around the outside is also going to crisp up. Uh, and then you're going to be getting you're cooking really fast. So one of the important things that frying does is that you're circulating. Uh, your so in in an oven, you know, when you have a whole turkey, you can imagine the um, the space inside the turkey. You know, the cavity where you might traditionally stuff it for example um even if it's unstuffed even if there's air in there it's kind of it kind of ends up sitting in place and so you don't get very much good circulation inside the uh turkey as far as heat goes right um so that's one of the reasons why it takes so long to roast a turkey um and why you know why spatchcocking is so much faster but deep frying a turkey um because oil is much more viscous, it kind of it kind of flows in and out, um, and so you're really getting hot oil inside the turkey as well as outside. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're cooking it from both sides really, really fast. Um, so what that means is that it it drastically cuts down uh, on the total cooking time, right. um, while also giving you really sort of crispy skin. Um, and so you know, and as long as you kind of don't overshoot the final temperature, as long as you're very careful about using your thermometer. Um, it can also be ex- like an extremely juicy way. To right. Okay. We've talked turkey. turkey long enough. Let's move on to because right. there are a lot of people who who are making vegetarian dishes, uh, and uh-huh. and uh, we've got questions about what's the best way to make a really good vegetarian gravy. Is it the heat, the cornstarch, or something else that really makes it work? Yeah. 
Um, well, so, you know, I think one of the things that makes it difficult to make a good vegetarian gravy compared to uh, a meat-based gravy is that meats give you those... Um, uh, those, those amino acids, um, so you know, glutamic acid and inosinic acid, and these things that we get, we associate with savoriness. Um, so you kind of want to look for sources to um, uh, replace or enhance those uh, savory notes. Um, and mm-hmm. so, <coughs> excuse me, when it comes to vegan or vegetarian stu- um, gravy, I think uh, making a really good mushroom stock, um, maybe adding some kombu, you know, like Jap- Japanese style kombu seaweed, right, right. Um, uh, sea kelp to it. Uh, to really sort of boost the umami factor using dried mushrooms like porcinis uh, can really improve uh, the umami factor in a in a in a stock um, and then also doing using fermented things so things like soy sauce and miso paste um, I think I, I think I have a recipe for a vegan gravy on serious eats that uses kind of all of those things uh, and then you just thicken it up at the end and it can be really really well, delicious you know I really enjoyed your talking about the physics of roasting in in the oven and we have a question from Karen in Kansas City Missouri hi Karen uh-huh. oh it's Carrie Carrie I'm sorry hi. oh no problem uh, one of my biggest issues is always oven space on the day uh-huh. and trying to make sure I'm not overcrowding and I've learned that crock pots can be a great alternative for some side so what's some good suggestions on when you know you've overcrowded your oven how much space do you need if you're you know <laughs> kind of timelining out you know to have everything ready at the same time and let the turkey rest and all that stuff yeah good question I mean, you, so i think yeah i mean a good a crock pot can definitely work well for 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 some things um uh, you know, having having some of your dishes be okay at room temperature is also, you know, I think, you know, that you can make like a grilled vegetable salad or a roasted vegetable salad um, that is good warm, but is also fine at room temperature. Um, so thinking about dishes that uh, you don't really have to worry about um, as far as sitting goes uh, is a good idea. Um, when it, you know, when it comes to oven space, I, I at, at Thanksgiving, you know, I grew up um, in a New York apartment, you know, so little galley kitchen with a tiny stove. Um, and I think the way we treated the oven on Thanksgiving was that towards, towards dinner time, it would sort of just become the warmer, right? So, excuse me, everything else was baked ahead of time. So the turkey was roasted, um, the sides were, you know, the stuffing was baked in its dish. Um, the, the Brussels sprouts were roasted and all kind of in heat proof containers. And then, um, once the last thing that you actually need to bake or cook in the oven is done, uh, mm. Then you can just pile everything back in to rewarm, um, you know. And I think with dishes, you know, Thanksgiving type dishes are almost built for that. You know, they're built. Right. They're they're a lot of sort of casseroles and baked things and things that are kind of just fine reheated um, and are almost even sometimes better reheated. Yeah, they taste better. So I don't think yeah. you have to worry too much about you know for most Thanksgiving dishes, I don't think you have to worry about them uh, going you know straight piping hot directly out of the oven onto the table. All right. Um, I think reheating them and holding them is totally fine. Let's go to Schlussy. Slushy in California. Hi, Slushy. Slushy. I'm sorry, I got your name correct? Yeah. Hi, go ahead. Hi. Um, my question was, are biscuits something that you can have for Thanksgiving? And also, Kenji, do you have a solution for every time someone makes biscuits, the dough comes out not not sticking together well? And when you bake it, it comes out hard. Mm. Yeah. What What mm. is Slushy doing wrong there? <laughs> I know. 
Um, so I, I definitely think you can have biscuits for Thanksgiving. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't I can't think of any occasion where you you can't have biscuits. Um, uh, I think they'd be great for Thanksgiving. Um, as far as the the second question, um, I think I'd need to know a little bit more about exactly what's going on. Um, so it sounds like the dough is coming out too dry, um, but the biscuits are also coming out too hard. Um, yeah. And all I can think is that out. maybe maybe you need to be using a lighter flour. So instead of uh, like an all purpose flour, using a um, something like white lily or um, or a you know a biscuit flour or a cake flour um, that will uh, be a little bit lower in gluten, um, so you know so more tender. That's a good idea, but my mom she'll use she'll make she'll use uh, all the ingredients because we have like a uh-huh. whole book of ingredients that we kind of use for the biscuits. Uh-huh. And whenever she makes them using the recipe, they turn out incredible. But I'll use the same recipe, and uh-huh. they'll turn out like literal cookies. So <laughs> sounds laughing, like maybe you laughing. need to maybe you need to work with your mom more closely. Yeah, yeah, that 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 is a good solution. <laughs> All right, yeah. so I'm gonna kind of have family over, and I feel like if I do a baking assignment for my class, and I give them that, they're kind of gonna. My reputation is kind of going to be ruined. <laughs> it's embarrassing. It's so. embarrassing. All right, Slushy, we got to go on, but thank you. That's an interesting phone call. Maybe your mom can help you out. Thanks for calling. Uh, let's talk about you. You mentioned before uh, a little bit about leaving stuff out on the counter, and this is a question we get asked uh-huh. all the time. How long can I leave things out on the countertop and feel safe that the bacteria is not going to do its thing? When it's out there. <laughs> um, you know, it depends on, so, you know, there's no, there's no hard and fast rule for this. Um, there are, you know, there are what, what um, the government requires restaurants to do it to, um, which the sort of the easy version is that it can't spend more than four hours between the temperatures of 40 degrees Fahrenheit and 140 degrees Fahrenheit total. So that includes the time that it takes to heat it up, the time it takes it to cool it down if you're putting it in the in the fridge um and the time it, uh, it takes to prepare and serve um so that you know that's that's, that's not the very sort of government long limit. that is four hours four hours yeah yeah you know and in it, it, it realistically though um you know that's sort of like the the extremely safe version mm-hmm. um uh realistically if you're ro- if you're cooking in your own home kitchen um and you roast a you know you 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 pull the green bean casserole out at 2 p.m. and dinner's not until 7. Um, I I would feel totally comfortable serving that. Mm. Um, you know, as long as you're, you're, you don't have like the uh, like the cat jumping over it or the kid stepping in it or anything. Um, but, you know, as long as you keep a relatively clean house and your your ingredients are uh, not moldy to begin with, um, I, I, you know, I think that it's, it's totally safe. Okay. Yeah. Before we run out, follow those rules exactly. Oh, sounds good. And before we run out of time, I've got some other questions. Some of them from our own staff members, and one of them is that uh, sometimes bad mashed potatoes are described as gluey. What's uh-huh. going on there from a chemical perspective? That gluey, and how do you ungluey them? <laughs> uh, you can't ungluey the glue, the gluey mashed potatoes. Um, so essentially, what's happening is that um, you're overactivating the starch, um, and so there's a couple ways that can happen. One of them is that you could be the potatoes could be kind of boiled too violently for too long before mashing them, um, and so they're kind of getting waterlogged, uh, and then uh, and then the starch molecules kind of expand and burst and and and. Oh, we sort of. 
we sort of lost him there. <laughs> Let's see if, well, see what happens when you talk about gluey mashed potatoes. <laughs> You lose the line. Let's see if uh, let's see if we can get get some phone calls in while we're, while while we're waiting. Let's go to Bob in Spokane, Washington. Hi, Bob. Hi there. Hi there. Go ahead. Okay. Well, my favorite way to prepare uh, Thanksgiving turkey is using the sous vide method, and that's where uh, the food is placed in a food safe plastic bag and then cooked at a lower temperature in a water bath. Uh, Typically, I'll take and uh, section the turkey, remove the leg quarters, the wings, and the breast meat. And one leg quarter and one wing goes in a one-gallon plastic bag. And then uh, the breast meat goes in another gallon plastic bag. And then that's uh, it's dry brined with salt, and you can use herbs and spices on it. And then it goes, the dark meat goes in starting at only 153 degrees, I believe it is. And it stays in for about four or five hours. And then you add the breast meat to that and drop the temperature down to about 145 degrees, as I recall. And then the whole thing takes about five hours to cook. And when it's done, it's juicy, it's flavorful. And then you take it out of the plastic bags, put it in a hot oven for a few minutes to brown it, and it's delicious. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That's a lot of preparation, isn't it? It is, but, you know, it, it turns out so well. And, and people say, well, yeah, but it's not getting up to the 165 degrees. Well, because it stays so long at those lower temperatures, actually pasteurizing it, so wow. it's safe at those temperatures. Who knew? Thank, thank you for that uh, suggestion, Bob, and your experiences. Yeah, you're welcome. Let's see if we can get another phone call in before we have to say goodbye, because we are running out of time. Let's go to Danielle in Santa Cruz, California. Hi. Hi. Is this... Uh this science is Friday. It Sorry, is sci- out for a second. It is Science Friday. <laughs> we're having a little technical difficulty, so we're hoping you're going to save us, Danielle. Uh, we'll see about that. Uh, I just wanted to ask. My mom always cooked Thanksgiving turkey in a really deep Mexican clay pot, or called olla de barro, and I'm wondering what, mm. how that makes it juicier, and whether that's a an actual scientific phenomenon that would make the turkey cook mm. juicier. Mm, I think Kenji is back. Kenji, did you hear that question? No. Uh, we didn't We didn't have him. Why does it make it juicier? I wish I, wish I had an answer for you. But uh, I'll see if we can... We'll, I'll see if we can get an answer for you offline, okay? Thanks for calling. Alright, thank you. Thank you. Let's, let's see if we get one more call in here. Let's go to Frank in Dillsburg, Pennsylvania. Dillsburg. Where is that, Frank? Uh, that's right outside of Harrisburg, PA. It's about uh, maybe twenty miles west of Harrisburg, little uh, little rural town. And you have a, you have something you're going to share with us? Yeah, just a, a just a quickie here. Uh, I know you're almost done with the Mayo uh, uh, issues, but um, I stumbled on a couple years ago to using mayonnaise on the salmon that I grill, and I used to use butter and then put spices on it and grill it on both sides. And it sounds really disgusting when you explain to people or they look that you're putting mayo on it, but it is remarkable. Um, and I just understood why today, because it, it doesn't drain off. And the, the tenderness and the taste and I guess the conveyance of some of the spices makes it really good. My wife is a really great cook, and she thinks it's the best salmon 
she's ever had. We go all over and eat it. So it's really tender, tasty, really easy to do. You know, just put the mayo on both sides, put your spices on, grill it, and it's wonderful. This My is mouth is watering, time. Frank. <laughs> it's, it's really good, although it sounds really disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and you discovered it on salmon, and then you did it for your turkey. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to try it for the turkey now, too. I never heard of that, but it makes sense. It huh. really does seem to work. Well, I will thank you for for thank you for taking time to be with us today, Frank. That's a great suggestion. Well, thank you. Your program is wonderful. The diversity is great. I I love you. So thanks. Thank you, thank you. And and we have run out of time. That is about all the time we have for now. And uh, of course, if you want to uh, hear from, uh, if you want questions about what to do behind, you know, are your favorite Thanksgiving foods, we've got some hits up there on our website. I want to thank Kenji Lopez Alt, cookbook author and food scientist, based in Seattle for. Well, we had so we had him on for most of the hour. We had a little bit of technical difficulties difficulties at the end, but boy, I learned a lot. I hope you did too in this hour. And of course, if you missed any part of the program, you'd like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday every day. Now is Science Friday, and of course, <clears throat> excuse me, you can say hi to us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email us the old-fashioned way, sci-fi at sciencefriday.com. Send us your feedback. Tell us what you'd like us to cover. Next week, we're going to have our annual Thanksgiving show. And what does that mean? That means the Ig Nobel Prizes will be back. Always a lot of fun to listen to them. So have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato.